let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM. At AM 930, it is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into this book, the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 13, and you know, last time we left off reflecting into the sign of the beast, and what I want to do is just jump right back into that discussion and do so with the Catechism of the Catholic Church and specifically do so as it relates to the Antichrist. Catholic teaching has always confirmed that the Church will pass through a final trial because of the activity of the Antichrist prior to Christ's return, right? So this is what the Catechism has to say, and this is from paragraphs 675 and 676. Before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. Okay, so one of the signs of that time right before the second coming is that many people's faith will be shaken. The Catechism continues. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Okay, so the second clear point here is that an apparent solution will be presented, but at the cost of what? Apostasy. The Catechism continues. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist. The Antichrist's deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment. The church has rejected even modified forms of this millenarianism, which is what? But this intrinsically perverted political form of secular messianism. And by secular messianism, we speak to that which is evident when a government or a political party promises a future or claims a loyalty that belongs to God alone, right? <laughs> the state is never the end. God is the end. And that's always another clear, distinct sign. So as we talk about the sign of the beast, and as we will continue to talk about the sign of the beast, I thought it would be very important to open up a reflection this evening with what the church has to say as it relates to not only the Antichrist, but also uh, the second coming. And uh, with that, let us jump back into chapter 13. And we do so, I believe we left off with more or less verse 4 and the second beast. So if you have your Bibles out there, this is Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So here in verse 4, the reference to the worship of the beast is once again an illusion from Daniel 3. There the king of Babylon sets up an image of himself to be worshipped. Similarly, an image of this beast is set up to be adored, right? And this is what verses 14 to 15 talks about in this chapter, so we'll talk about that more later. Furthermore, 
The worship of the beast describes the widespread custom whereby Roman emperors were worshipped as gods. As we saw in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, many temples were erected throughout Asia Minor for this express purpose. Now, Debbie was with me in our last program, and we talked about the importance of the Lamb of God. And I want to bring that back a little bit because what we are made to see is that the beast is a kind of demonic parody of the Lamb. This is seen in the many parallels of the Lamb and the beast, and uh, Michael Barber and his work coming soon draws this out. If you were to pay close attention to this, we see that like the Lamb who receives authority from God in Revelation chapter 5, verses 7 and 12, the first beast receives authority from the dragon in chapter 13, verse 2. Just as the Lamb is the ruler over people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, in chapter 5, verse 9, so too the beast rules over every tribe and people, tongue and nation, in chapter 13, verse 7. Just as the cherubim and 24 elders worshipped the Lamb, in chapter 5, verse 14, so too men worshipped the beast. As the lamb appears as one who has been slain in verse 6 of chapter 5, the beast lives in spite of a mortal wound. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we are to appreciate how Satan wishes once again to hijack every truth that belongs to the lamb of God. Like those who belong to the lamb, Those who belong to the beast are marked with a sign on their foreheads, right? So what are we doing here? Does this not bring us back to how we are called to interpret Scripture? One verse in light of the other. Once we begin to interpret one verse in light of another verse and one book in light of another book, we begin to interpret sacred Scripture as it ought to be interpreted, right? Okay, so what else could be said as it relates to the beast? Well, Once again, we have to appreciate the historical context of this. Does not Rome embody a world power which sets itself up as an evil substitute for Christ? Its close association with the dragon, who is the devil, shows that Rome's dominion comes from Satan. Yet, the image is not simply limited to Rome. What does it reveal? Well, it reveals the true demonic nature of any world power that opposes God and his church, that Satan has power to give earthly political authority, is clear, is it not, from Satan's third attempt to tempt Christ. What do we read in Matthew chapter 4, in verses 8 to 10? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these I will give you, If you will fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. How about that? I love this observation that Michael Barber makes here. Notice in this temptation narrative that Jesus does not correct Satan, saying something like, You don't have that kind of power. You see, my friends, The temptation is dangerous because Satan, the dragon, does in fact confer power on those who worship him. And if you were to question this, I highly, highly recommend you read some of Father Amorth's work. 
Father Amorth. Who's Father Amorth? Well, he is the exorcist who actually just passed away. He has a number of books out there where he explains his encounter with the demonic uh, during some of his exorcisms. Uh, one is titled, An Exorcist Tells His Story. That's An Exorcist Tells His Story. I believe that came out in 1990. He also has one that came out in 2010 entitled, Memoirs of an Exorcist, My Life Fighting Satan. Memoirs of an Exorcist, My Life Fighting Satan. In these books, my friends, you come to appreciate what we are talking about now, the kind of power that Satan actually has when those who fall down and worship him entrust themselves to him. Okay, so this isn't supposed to scare us, but no, it is to put in context what we are dealing with. We know who wins, right? We know the outcome. Is this not what the whole second coming is about? We know who wins, and that's Jesus. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Christ and be mindful that there will be temptations. Be mindful that there will be obstacles to overcome. We do so living and working with the end in mind, and that end is Jesus Christ. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 to 10? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Every one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Wow. Again, we see the symbolic number 42 months and derived from where but Daniel, right? A time, two times, and a half time. As in Daniel, this image signifies a time of what? tribulation. And here, the number symbolizes a time wherein the beast, that of course is Rome, persecutes the church. It also appears, and as discussed before, Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome actually lasted how long? But about 42 months. A warning, however, is issued to the churches so that they will, what? Endure. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes, if anyone slays with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Now, scholars have recognized this to be an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 2, and chapter 43, verse 11. In both places, God explains that he will use the king of Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. Here then, the Roman emperor is, is like the king of Babylon, right? As he comes to destroy the Jerusalem temple. Since destruction is coming, the saints must not give up. They must endure their tribulation a little longer. Now, this discussion begs the question, and it is a question taken up by uh, Peter Williamson in his commentary on the book of Revelation. And that question is, why does God allow the beast to wage war against the holy ones and to conquer them? Brothers and sisters, Revelation does not directly answer this question. 
Neither do other New Testament texts that predict the increase of evil and hardship for God's people when history nears its climax. Ultimately, Christians are called to trust in God's goodness as amply demonstrated through the gift of His Son. The best guide here to God's attitude towards us through times of affliction can probably be found in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39, where we are called to enter into our sonship and go deeper into a life of prayer, mindful that afflictions and sufferings will come our way, but in and through a life of prayer, we will come to understand them for what they are. If we wish to reflect on God's purposes, it is always important to remember the difference between his permissive will and his deliberate will. This is what Williamson takes up. You see, God allows evil to flourish, but he does not desire it. God's desire is for a world absolutely free of evil. Nevertheless, God knows how to make use of evil choices by humans and supernatural beings to advance his plan. When God allows evil to run its course and manifest its true nature, the difference between good and evil, between worshiping God and worshiping anything else, becomes clear, does it not? This will help some people to make better choices and find salvation. This manifestation of evil also makes the justice of God's judgment more obvious when he condemns those who choose the worship of idols and the evil doing that accompanies it. Did he not talk about this in, in Revelation chapter 9 as well as Revelation chapter 11? Regarding Christians, the consistent teaching of Scripture is that trials, although temporarily painful, make us better if we endure them with faith and hope. This is what I was just talking about as it relates to Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 28 to 39. Revelation makes clear that God delights in the virtue of his people who have been faithful through what? Trial. He honors those who share in Christ's ministry of testifying to the truth and who suffer for it. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But what does he say in Revelation chapter 19? And the righteous deeds like these are a bright, clean linen garment that will adorn the bride of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, For those who endured in suffering, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain. Now maybe for some of you, that answer does not satisfy that initial question. Why does God allow the beast to wage war against the holy ones and to conquer them? Well, in the end, my friends, this does bring us back to that foundational question as it relates to good and evil. Huh? Why does God allow evil if he is so good and so loving? It's because God is so loving that there is evil in the world. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, think about it. What must be present for love to exist? but freedom. You see, my friends, freedom does not come from without, but from within. Freedom is inherent in any definition of love. Why? Because you can never force anyone to love you. Love must always be freely given. And so once free will becomes a prerequisite of love, then what do you have? Well, the choice, the choice to choose between good and evil. So my dear friends, if we are going to love God as we ought, we must have freedom. And if we have freedom, then we will have evil because people will choose against God, right? 
God will never impose himself upon you. He's too much of a gentleman, right? As a father, I get this, right? Because there is nothing that brings me more joy when my children freely choose to love. Just not me, but their brothers and sisters and the larger body of Christ. If I just wound them up like little toys, like little robots, and made them do whatever I wanted them to do, although sometimes I, I want to do that, <laughs> I would never receive the love that I long for, the love that can only be when it is freely given. So why does a God who is so loving allow evil? Because he is so loving. <laughs> and as we just discussed, he will take the most dramatic of all evils and turn it into the greatest good. And that is what he does on the cross. The worst day in human history became Good Friday because he turned Satan upside down and in so doing, he turned everything right side up because that's what God does. That's what God does. Okay, Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. There again, we have mortal wound, right? <laughs> it works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So like the first beast, the second beast is a parody of the lamb. Though it looks like a lamb, as we've talked about, it's really nothing more than another agent of Satan. Now, for those of you who did not hear the program last week uh, and, and the conversation I had with Debbie on 666, I want to go back to that a, a little bit. And I want to do so mindful of first an important historical piece. That is to say what the number itself 666 signifies. As noted last week, at the most basic level of biblical symbolism, if seven represents perfection, and did we not talk about this right as it relates to the great covenant with God, six signifies imperfection. And so when there are three sixes, we have what? But a superlative form of imperfection. It is likely that John has in mind a more precise meaning since he says that it is possible to calculate, that is literally count, the number of the beast and that it stands for a person literally is the number of a man. What's going on here? Well, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the letters of the alphabet were also used as numbers. In Hebrew, the first nine letters signify one to nine. The next nine letters signify 10 to 90 and so on. It is therefore possible to add up the numerical value of the letters and to ascertain a number for a word or phrase. So according to this genre of interpreting literature, if the numerical value of two words or phrases is the same, 
there is a relationship between them. So when the Greek word for beast, therion, is translated into Hebrew, the numerical value of the letters is what? 666. When the Greek version of Nero's name, Caesar Neron, is translated into Hebrew, it also totals what? 666. So many scholars believe that John identifies Nero with the number of the beast. Now, we also talked about the significance of this number as it relates to Solomon. And, and I do want to just rehash some of that because it is important to our larger discussion of the number 666 and the beast. If you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, what do we read there? Well, that King Solomon amassed 666 talents of gold, specifically talents of golden taxes, right? This, in point of fact, is the only place in the Bible where 666 occurs. So Solomon, king of Israel, known for his great and holy wisdom, does what? Well, he slowly slips into sin and went from being, as we talked about last week, a type of Christ, ultimately to a antichrist. He, who was called to be a priest king like Melchizedek, ultimately chose to be king instead of priest. Now, what's important for us to understand is that this connection with Solomon is underscored by John's mention that wisdom is necessary to discern the beast's identity, something famously attributed to Solomon. Go to Revelation 13, verses 16 to 18. What do we read? Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, huh? Verse 18, wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. So Solomon then, like Adam, failed to fulfill his vocation by preferring earthly goods to heavenly ones. Now this translates into the perverted two beasts of Revelation, the corrupt state and the false prophet. And here we can add to our reflections from last week, huh? All kingship must be ordered to God or else it becomes tyrannical. All priesthood must be directed to the true king or else it becomes false, serving only the interests of human rulers. When John uses 666, he refers to fallen humanity. Does not the number value of the beast 666 echo Adam's sin? Instead of realizing his call to be God's son, Adam was relegated to be like the beast he was made with on the sixth day. This kind of highlighted our discussion last week. Solomon also fails, forsaking his call to be God's son. And yet, as Michael Barber reflects, there's more to this riddle <laughs> if the number 666 is going to be a riddle. Because in John's day, the notion of corrupt kingship would no doubt remind the people of another wicked king of Jerusalem, Herod, right? Herod was himself a counterfeit ruler. Indeed, Jerusalem was home not only to the corrupt religious leadership symbolized by the second beast, but also to an evil king symbolized by the first beast. Thus, the emperor of Rome, 
a corrupt ruler will be used by God to bring what? But judgment on this city characterized by such intense wickedness. This city, which has gone from holiness to wickedness, like Solomon, under the rule of evil kings like Herod, will now be judged. You see what's going on here, my friends? <laughs> With just a handful of verses, you not only have one insight, two insights, but many insights to be gained, and only to be gained when you apply them not only into history, as we have been so careful to do, but also how we can gain spiritual lessons that transcend that history. This is why we, when we go to interpret the biblical text, we do so within the historical context, the literal sense, right, and the spiritual sense. You have the human and the divine. You have the letter and the spirit. Just as human authors were writing to a very real audience, but they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so you have the literal sense and the spiritual sense. Okay, what more could be said? I have received a number of questions that point to how to respond to the much larger question of how you respond to the second coming. First and foremost, appreciate what we have been talking about up to this point through chapter 13, that the book of Revelation in so many ways is caught up in the mass in liturgy. And so we are tasked to better understand the Mass. This is why Scott Hahn's work, The Lamb's Supper, is so important because it goes through how we can find the Mass in the book of Revelation. So once we understand that Christ coming down upon the altar is the second coming, okay, then we might be uh, more equipped, so to speak. And not only how to respond to the question of the second coming, but how to become the second coming, right? Because every time we go into the world with Christ living within us, we are the second coming of Christ in the world. Now, what's also important to this question is that, is there going to be a time, a second coming? In many ways, the reason why I opened up with what I did, with that reflection that comes to us from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraphs 675 to 676, so that we might appreciate the significance that there will be a trial, a time of great persecution, a time where there will be a lot of disillusion, where there will be a lot of confusion. Remember what the word Satan means, to confuse. So there will be that time. And so, yeah, go back and read paragraphs 675 and 676 of the Catechism. But do so again, mindful of what the book of Revelation is all about, the Mass. Because it is, when we appreciate that, then we will be better disposed to not only respond to the question, but more importantly, be an invitation to the world to contemplate the deeper meaning of Christ so that when that final trial and persecution does come, we will be focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.